Well, good day to you, Larry here, hope you're well. It's the Daily Larb, episode number 153, I do believe. It being Sunday, that means it's Sunday Letters, and Sunday Letters is a newsletter that goes out every week to my readers uh, via email. If you haven't or don't get it, uh, currently you can go over to larrygmaguire.com and sign up to receive it. I also record uh, the uh, a recorded version of it here for the podcast, and uh, that's what you're listening to. Uh, it's Daily Larb, and this podcast goes out on iTunes, on Spreaker, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn. Everywhere good podcasts are played, you're going to get this uh, show. And, of course, on Anchor, which is where I record it. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast and help me keep it advert and promotional content free, which it currently is, get over to Patreon dot com forward slash Larry G McGuire and become a patron for as little as one dollar a month and your contribution will help me ultimately create more time to make this stuff and uh, do a better job of it continually refine it um, and that's uh, my aim uh, I I make this podcast because I like to because I want to for no other reason it doesn't uh, provide me with income necessarily uh, at least not directly, um, but I do it because I like it and I want to continue it. Um, and that premise is fundamental to my own creative philosophy. It's what I wrote about in the, the Artist Manifesto. It's in there. If you haven't got a copy of that, when you sign up for Sunday Letters, I'll send you a free short-form version of the Artist Manifesto. And in it, you'll read about uh, why we creative people should continue to create Simply for the sake of it, first and foremost, for the love and enjoyment and in, in a challenge of the task, of the endeavour, of the work in whatever domain you happen to be operating in, it doesn't matter. And uh, I think every single person on the planet is capable of creating something wonderful, something beautiful, something to be admired, no matter what work we do, you know. And that's what this podcast is about. I like to bring in material uh, that I think on quite a bit uh, might deviate from that particular central focus from time to time uh, but primarily that's the nature of the content you'll find here so if you're an artist or a creative or a, or a craftsperson or someone who engages in specific work uh, and it's become your passion and you love to do it even if you're not getting paid for it you might be getting paid for it you might you might do what you do professionally and that's cool too. In fact, I'd encourage that because um, turning our creative work into a means to generate income for us uh, inevitably, I think, leads us to more uh, accurate performance of our work, uh, better performance of it. Um, and, uh, well, I think it's the continued development of you and me, you know, through that work. And if someone's going to pay you for it, well, then that's all the better. It's the, it's the opposite side of the creative coin, you know. So that's what the show is about. And today uh, I want to talk to you about a little bit about that creative process. Um, and specifically two books that I'm reading uh, making me way through. It seems to be forever, but I tend to read over the same stuff uh, a number of times. I don't just read it through and then put it down and say, oh, I read that. Um, I, I like to uh, kind of forensically you might say uh, get into the material 
and box stuff off and underline stuff and highlight stuff that uh, means something or some some sometimes it's opinions and views that I don't agree with they could either be scientifically founded or not doesn't matter um and I do that uh, I've been doing it with this book flow by Mihaly Saxent Mihaly doing it for a while he says on the book uh, that it's a classic work on how to achieve happiness but I don't know I think that's just uh like I said in yesterday's episode where I kind of said I was going to just touched on the fact that I was going to be reading from this book today. Um, I think that's a little bit of a marketing ploy, you know, because everybody's just trying to find happiness, that elusive feeling, you know. I think ultimately that's a, a, a folly, you know, on our part, trying to find happiness. Because if you're trying to find it, it means you don't have it. And if you don't have it, well, <laughs> you're you're not in a very good place, you know. And if you continually spend your life trying to find it, well, you'll never find it, you know. As a... Uh, uh, you can read in uh, what's the book called? Hang on, I have it here somewhere. Uh, oh, I don't know where it's gone. Oh, I have so many books. Anyway, scratch that. But uh, I suppose if you're constantly looking to find something, well, then that's what you're doing. You're looking to find it, and chances are you'll never find it in that mode of thought. So happiness is kind of a bit of a rubbish term. Um, in my view so anyway these two books one is uh, Flow from Mihaly Sixcent Mihaly and uh, as I said I've been reading that a while and the other one is a newer one that I've kind of added to my uh, ever increasing collection of reading materials called The Road to Excellence uh, by uh, edited by Anders Ericsson and Ericsson this, this book actually is a, a compilation of uh, many studies into the creative process and the perfection of uh, your craft and, and expert performance uh, and it was compiled by Ericsson uh, and includes scientific psychological research by a number of different uh, psychologists into the area of expertise and uh, creative expert performance and uh, Ericsson is well known for one particular study um, published in 1993 uh, titled The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. And I'm going to read a little bit from that first off. Uh, I'm going to comment on it. Now, it's a fairly chunky uh, piece of research, and it, it, it references or cites dozens of others um, in its, uh, throughout its uh, findings, you know. So there's, it's like a rabbit hole, these things. Once you get into once you get into one particular piece of material, it just takes it down and down and down, and you don't know where you're going to go. But um, I'm always skeptical. Uh, I hold a healthy degree of skepticism about uh, uh, well-formed, in inverted commas, well-formed opinion, um, especially scientific opinion, because uh, once you begin to label a thing, you can notice something in the environment right and you go hey check that out and you point at it and other people might see it too but what you see is always subjective it can never not be subjective and just because it can be repeated and just because other people might see it too and be able to replicate it also doesn't mean that it's not subjective and doesn't mean that it remains subjective people like to add this tag of objectivity to scientific endeavour as if to say that 
science should be held above all other modes of thought, you know, the scientific method. But in delving deep into things and breaking them up and drilling them down and trying to find the smallest particular components that make up a thing invariably leads you and me uh, blinkered into the thing and we miss so much more. And it's kind of like when you're making something, you know, it's kind of like when you're drawing. Although science will break up that creative process and try to, with an analytical mind, find out how it's made. But you can never do that. Never ultimately. It does have its value. Of course it does. But it can blind us to broader truths that exist when we solely depend on the scientific method to give us the answers. And they never will, you know. And we've got to be conscious of that. So uh, I'm going to read some stuff from, from this study by Ericsson. It's obviously uh, uh, an elite performer in his own particular field of endeavour, you know. And who am I? Just some bloke. <laughs> some bloke recording a podcast in Dublin somewhere who has um, nowhere near as much experience or uh, expertise in this particular subject as Mr. Ericsson. But uh, I do have a view and... Um, I do have a certain degree of experience to uh, draw upon on these things. And this it might seem, um, I'll get on with it now in a second, but it might seem that I'm picking holes in some of this stuff, but I think it's important to have that little bit of uh, uh, kind of scepticism when it comes to reading other people's material, because if you don't, well, you're just, you're just a vessel for other people's information, really, aren't you? you know? So anyway... Um, the role of deliberate practice and acquisition of expert performance. Uh, just read the um, uh, abstract for you, uh, and then I'll move on to a particular s- segment of this uh, study that I want to talk about. The theoretical framework presented in this article explains expert performance as the end result of individuals' prolonged efforts to improve performance while negotiating motivational and external constraints. In most domains of expertise, individuals begin in their childhood a regimen of effortful activities, deliberate practice, designed to optimise improvement. Individual differences, even among elite performers, are closely related to assessed amount of deliberate practice. Many characteristics, once believed to reflect innate talent, are actually the result of intense practice extended for a minimum of 10 years. Analysis of expert performance provides unique evidence on the potential and limits of extreme environmental adaptation and learning. So he goes on to cite several people in his introduction uh, and offers brief historical background, etc., etc. And uh, after several pages of content, uh, he moves on to a particular section here titled comparison of deliberate practice to other types of domain related activities and here in particular he's comparing uh, uh, work play and deliberate practice as three distinct elements and uh, I'm going to read through what he says here and then I'm going to uh, offer my own kind of take on what he's saying Uh, this is something that stood out for me as um, certain aspects to it as being inaccurate according to my own particular experience. Uh, Okay, so consider three general types of activities, namely work, play and deliberate practice. 
Work includes public performance, competitions, services rendered for pay and other activities directly motivated by external rewards. Play includes activities that have no explicit goal and that are inherently enjoyable. Deliberate practice includes activities that have been specially designed to improve the current level of performance. The goals, costs and rewards of these three types of activities differ, as does the frequency with which individuals pursue them. Now, I would particularly say here that those three activities uh, blend and overlap and uh, are more prominent in different quantities for every single individual, you know, and they're not distinct. You can say they're distinct. You can pinpoint and go, hey, check that out. But you have to take into account the overlapping nature of these phenomena, these behaviors, you know, or these particular states or, or activities, as he calls them. Anyway, I'll continue. Public performance and competitions are constrained in time. These activities are well, as well as rendering a service for pay, require that individuals give their best performance at a given time. The distinction between work and training, deliberate practice, is generally recognised. Individuals given a new job are often given some period of apprenticeship or supervised activity during which they are supposed to acquire an acceptable level of reliable performance. Thereafter, individuals are expected to give their best performance in work activities and hence individuals rely on previously well-entrenched methods rather than exploring alternative methods with unknown reliability. I'd agree with that. You know, training allows you the space to, uh, in uh, in quotations, make mistakes, you know, and uh, or do, do some trial and error. I, I accept that. Um... The costs of mistakes or failures to meet deadlines are generally great, which discourages learning and acquisition of new and possibly better methods during the time of work. For example, highly experienced users of computer software applications are found to use a small set of commands, thus avoiding the learning of a larger set of more efficient commands. Although work activities offer some opportunities for learning, they are far more optimal. In contrast, deliberate practice would allow for repeated experiences in which the individual can attend to the critical aspects of the situation and incrementally improve his or her performance in response to knowledge of results, feedback or both from a teacher. Accept that, nothing wrong with that. Let us briefly illustrate the differences between work and deliberate practice. So he goes on to talk about baseball here. and uh, All that kind of crack, right? It's a little bit boring. But uh, let me see where the next part I want to get for you here. The external rewards of work activities include social recognition and, most important, money in the form of prizes and pay, which enables performers to sustain a living. In play and deliberate practice, external rewards are almost completely lacking. Well, um, okay, he does say almost completely lacking, but uh, I think that's a little bit short-sighted because it's in the anticipation, certainly, if your deliberate practice is related to your work let's say as a sportsman or sportswoman, that your practice, you know by virtue of improving your performance through practice, through this practice you're currently engaged in, that you have the potential to earn more, you know. And and it does, I would say, uh, although the intensity mightn't be the same, certainly not, uh, it, I think it does influence your your uh, performance or how you, how you carry out the, the practice. Um, 
The goal of play is the activity itself and the inherent enjoyment of it of it is evident in children who spontaneously play for extended periods of time. Recent analysis of inherent enjoyment in adults reveal an, enjoy, an enjoyable state of flow in which individuals are completely immersed in the activity. That's a, a quote from Mihaly Sixcent Mihaly, which I'll get to shortly. Similarly, analyses of reported peak experiences in sports reveal an enjoyable state of effortless mastery and execution of an activity. This state of diffused attention is almost antithetical to focused attention required by deliberate practice to maximise feedback and information about corrective action. In contrast to play, this is the bit I really don't I don't um, uh, assign to. In contrast to play, deliberate practice is a highly structured activity. The explicit goal of which is to improve performance. Specific tasks are invented to overcome weaknesses and performance is carefully monitored to provide cues for ways to improve it further. We claim that deliberate practice requires effort and is not inherently enjoyable. I, I don't buy into that, you know. I've practiced in sporting um, endeavours and, and others and uh, it is enjoyable. It has to be. Training and taking part in deliberate practice either on your own or in a group has to be enjoyable because if it's not sure what's the point you soon lose enthusiasm for it that's my view and it's been my experience uh, so i think that's a little bit short-sighted individuals are motivated to practice because practice improves performance i think there's a lot more to it than that in addition engaging in deliberate practice generates no immediate monetary rewards and generates costs associated with access to teachers and training environment that's fine but that's not something that's on my mind if i'm taking part in in a particular uh if i'm practicing or training for something i'm not i'm not i'm not concerned with the fact that my training is costing me money or costing me resources you know thus an understanding of long-term consequences of deliberate practice is important blah 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 so it goes on through into that um the main problem i have with that particular segment of material from from uh ericsson is that uh he tries to break up deliberate practice, like training, um, going to your work every day, you know, um, and play and and work, and tries to um, silo them out as being different. And um, maybe elsewhere in the in the research paper, it might give some credence to the fact that these things overlap. Because I think they do, you know. I don't believe that 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 element of play uh, is vital to the continued engagement by you and me in the thing, you know. And to um, write it off as, and he does kind of write it off. There's elsewhere in the in the paper here in the conclusion, I think, where um, he says that he, he he leans to the fact that maybe play is you know it doesn't come into it you know and i don't i don't assign myself to that to another section of this paper by ericsson um he begins to outline a theoretical framework for the acquisition of expert performance and he outlines some elements and i won't go reading it like this thing is 
I don't know how many pages long this is. It's, it's a chunky um, research paper. And this research paper you can find in The Road to Excellence, the book I mentioned, uh, amongst, other, uh, amongst other material. Um, and he, he notes here that engagement in deliberate practice is not inherently motivating. He also said it's not inherently enjoyable. Now, I can only refer to some stuff that I've done in kind of trying to process what he's suggesting and uh, let's say marathon running I've done a bunch of marathons I've done a load of them actually uh, and I've done some ultras too and and in the preparation for that for those events I would have trained of course um, so I'm by no means I wouldn't regard myself certainly as elite an elite athlete certainly in terms of time maybe in terms of endurance I probably would be but not in terms of time so um i've been kind of thinking about some of the material i've read in this in this uh, research paper and can i say that the training i did was inherently enjoyable i would have to say it was enjoyable no i wasn't jumping around the place ecstatic after finishing a training session but um uh, like there is an, a, a degree of enjoyment you receive from carrying that out like it it can apply it to carrying out those that training in advance of a of a uh, of an event you know and i can think of it in terms when we work too i think about the work that i do that i go to every day bum 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 over and over and over again now, i don't do exactly the same work but i do rely on the same basket of skills you know um now he doesn't touch on that stuff Although Mihaly, Sixcent Mihaly does, he talks about and has interviewed hundreds if not thousands of people in ordinary walks of life doing ordinary jobs uh, day in, day out. So he does have an, have an opinion. I'm going to read from that book shortly. Um, but Ericsson doesn't dip into that at all. And I know we put people who achieve, uh, you know, heightened degrees of success in sporting fields and in maybe academic fields we put them up on a pedestal and we say oh everybody has to be like them you know this is the this is the tip that we all have to achieve but there's expert performance achieved not in monetary terms but in simply the practice and the carrying out of our work in all walks of life you know and uh, i believe that showing up every day and doing your thing whether it's drawing pictures or writing books or or uh, or installing pipes or building walls or whatever it is you're doing, um, there is a degree of enjoyment in that. There certainly is for me. And flow, you know, of getting into that state of flow, you're just, boom, you're on it, you know. You're doing your work with a high degree of integrity and attention to detail. Um, but he doesn't get into that. And some of the things he asserts, I think... Okay, he's gone to the extent of trying to put creativity and expert performance into a box and say, this is how you do it. And like I said at the top of this episode, you you lose something important when you try to uh, itemize these things and try to detail them in such a way as to isolate them and say, this is how you do it, you know, because, um, like I said, you miss important aspects of the thing. Uh, so that's Ericsson uh, that paper is available on my site if you want to download it and read it you can get it free 
it's a I think it's even if it's not public domain I've access to uh, the likes of these papers through college and uh, maybe you mightn't um, although it could be in the public domain I don't know but anyway I, I, I've got it in PDF and it's available on the site and if you want to go and read the article associated with today's episode you can get that paper um, so anyway that's his stuff at least a little bit of it uh, I want to move on to Flow by Mihaly Sixent Mihaly. I want to read you a piece from this now. Um, he goes on, essentially he says that this state of flow is a place where uh, experts, where you don't have to be professional, a professional sports person or uh, an academic or a medic or, or, you know, a chess player. Or, you don't have to be at the pinnacle of your particular field but to to achieve flow it can be achieved everywhere and doing no matter what and i know i feel it from reading the material in this book i can relate it to the stuff that i do and it seems like when i get into the zone and i'm doing my thing that i'm doing it and it's just it's almost like i can watch it happening if that makes sense you know it's like Everything is moving at a rapid pace. I'm uh, there might be some time constraints on it. I might need to get in and out of somewhere quickly, uh, and I move fast. Other days I feel like moving slow. But uh, there's a certain rhythm and efficiency to the work, you know. Um, and I felt it, and no doubt you felt it too in what, in what you do. And all of a sudden hours are gone, you know, and you're like, shit, look at the time. Uh, it tends to move fast and uh, that kind of ties in with another book that I'm reading or not reading but listening to at the moment I think I might have mentioned it in a recent uh, past episode uh, a book um, I forget the title of the book it's by Carlo uh, Ravelli he's a a quantum physicist studying uh, quantum gravity and his assertion that time doesn't exist there's a book I forget the name of the book I'll get it for you again um and he's um some of his material ties into this because he says um uh, in referring to other uh, eminent uh, researchers from the past including einstein and leibniz and other people that uh, time is purely subjective you know is that it's my time like my point of consciousness determines the universe that i experience and yours determines your version of the universe and my notion of uh is there a an objective universe is that my answer to that is no it is not because just because you see the same as me or at least you appear to it merely it merely means that our experiences are overlapping you know so anyway uh this is uh, an extract from one of the chapters page 46 and he's talking mihaly sixth mihaly here is talking about the difference between uh enjoyment and pleasure and uh, lots of us indulge in pleasurable activities you know stuff that switches us off uh, taking drugs or drinking or uh, watching tv or going shopping stuff that doesn't require much in the way of brain power or attention to detail uh, or attention or focus uh, it just allows us to escape you know and um Sixth Mahaley suggests that this robs us of the flow experience and robs us of meaningful uh, life experiences 
and ultimately our own happiness because it never gets us anywhere, you know, except uh, short-term enjoyment or short-term pleasure. So let me read this for you. Pleasure is an important component of the quality of life, but by itself it does not, it does not bring happiness. Sleep, rest, food and sex provide restorative homeostatic experiences that return consciousness to order after the needs of the body intrude and cause psychic entropy to occur. But they do not produce psychological growth. They do not add to the complexity of the self. Pleasure helps to maintain order, but by itself cannot create new order in consciousness. So, essentially what he's saying there, and that that's into the book um, a fair bit after discussing various topics such as the self, psychic entropy, uh, complexity and uh, diversity and all this kind of thing so essentially um, most of the world is engaged in this pursuit of pleasure you know and uh, it's there for us advertisers uh, push stuff under our noses and promise us um, the sun moon and stars you know maybe not directly but they do promise us uh, a better life if we buy their shit you know and uh, we fall for it, hook, line and sinker. And we never achieve any happiness at all because, uh, or any state of contentment, you know, because um, we're just continually taking uh, a sugar buzz instead of a proper meal, you might say, I don't know. When people ponder further about what makes their lives rewarding, they tend to move beyond pleasant memories and begin to remember other events, other experiences that overlap with pleasurable ones but fall into a category that deserves a separate name, enjoyment. Enjoyable events occur when a person has not only met some prior expectation or satisfied a need or a desire but also gone beyond what he or she has been programmed to do and achieved something unexpected, perhaps something even unimagined before. Enjoyment is characterised by this forward movement, by a sense of novelty, of accomplishment. Playing a close game of tennis that stretches one's ability is enjoyable, as is reading a book that reveals things in a new light, as is having a conversation that leads us to express ideas we didn't know we had. Closing a contested business deal or any piece of work well done is enjoyable. None of these experiences may be particularly pleasurable at the time they are taking place, but afterward, we think back on them and say, that was really fun, and we wish they would happen again. After an enjoyable event, we know that we have changed, that ourself has grown. In some respect, we have become more complex as a result of it. I buy into that, absolutely. Uh, I do think that there's an element of enjoyment in it. Like, if I'm training, if I'm lifting the bar and I'm doing some cleans, or I'm, I'm swinging a kettlebell, or, or doing some squats or whatever, like... And pushing myself physically to a particular limit uh, of exhaustion, there is a there is in some kind of crazy way uh, an an enjoyment in that, you know. Well, I suppose it's something to do with like your uh, neurological activity and the chemicals that are released in your brain, the endorphins and all that kind of stuff. And maybe it's to do with the sugars, the the fats that are metabolized, or maybe the sugars that are released from your liver into your bloodstream, and you're feeling that heightened sense of something, you know. Maybe that's what that is, but um. There is an enjoyment in that. And after the fact, after you finish your hard training session, for example, again, I keep referring back to training, but after you finish your hard training session and you're recovered and you're sitting down maybe to something to eat and you go, that was, that was tough, 
but you feel good about it, you know? So maybe that's what he's talking about. Experiences that give pleasure can also give enjoyment, but the two sensations are quite different. For instance, everybody takes pleasure in eating. To enjoy food, however, is more difficult. I don't know what he means by that, even as I read this before. Maybe I'll get it this time. A gourmet enjoys eating, as does anyone who plays enough, pays enough attention to a meal so as to discriminate the various sensations provided by it. As this example suggests, we can experience pleasure without any investment of psychic energy. Psychic energy is that that's something that exists uh, that allows us to focus our attention into a particular thing, into a piece of work or a task. You know, that's what he that's what he uh, calls psychic energy. I think I have it underlined here somewhere else. Um, a person can feel pleasure without any effort if the appropriate centers in the brain are electrically stimulated or as a result of the chemical stimulation of drugs. But it is impossible to enjoy a tennis game, a book or a conversation unless attention is fully concentrated on the activity. It is for this reason that pleasure is so evanescent and that the self does not grow as a consequence of pleasurable experiences. Complexity requires investing psychic energy in goals that are new, that are relatively challenging. It is, a, it is easy to see this process in children. During the first few years of a child's, of every child is a little learning machine, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, this natural con- connection between growth and enjoyment tends to disappear with time, perhaps because learning becomes an external imposition when schooling starts. Interesting. The excitement of mastering new skills gradually wears out. It becomes all too easy to settle down within a narrow boundary of self-developed uh, of the self-developed in adolescence, but if one is but if one gets to be too complacent, feeling that psychic energy invested in new directions is wasted, unless there is a good chance of repeating an extrinsic rewards for it, one may end up no longer enjoying life, and pleasure becomes the only source of positive experience. So, in other words, you kind of this is where. You know, he hints on the fact that school kind of uh, teaches our kids uh, out of maybe uh, those inherent, innate creative abilities, you know, and boxes them into a particular set of rules and and, uh, modes of learning. And uh, that's a problem because, uh, you know, it's this common route to being... Uh, I suppose an orderly and recognised worthy member of society you know you have to follow these rules and go to school and get a job and blah 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 blah. and uh, that's a problem because most of us never really experienced that heightened state of achievement that we could you know now I understand in modern society coming together uh, to create what it is we're creating is important for I suppose the development of our society and all that kind of thing right that's all fine but so many things are lost when we give up that degree of individual individuality I would suggest and row in with the machine you know and just we become a pawn for the machine and that's that's a problem unfortunately but uh those two books I'm reading at the moment, and they kind of tie in together. And you can see um, in Erickson's uh, piece, he does refer to Mihaly, Sixth Mihaly. And um, 
a lot of the stuff I read, I agree with. Um, I do highlight stuff in both books that I, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't, in Six Cent Mahaley's book, he talks about consciousness. He continually refers to consciousness. Uh, and I think that there needs to be a distinction made between waking consciousness and the sleeping consciousness or the subconscious, you know, the, the unconscious. Because um, you might start off by saying, I really like this, uh, but there's a certain, I really like this, so now I'm going to engage with it, right? Now, you could be doing that for 10 years in a particular field or domain, uh, but once you get into it, something else takes over. It, the process almost becomes automated. Now, there's certain times I, I agree that um, you have to deviate from the learned patterns, you know? You have to be able to react, let's say, in a, in a, in a sporting environment on the pitch uh, between two teams it's it's always different every game is different but there's a certain degree of automated response well i think a large degree you could say um and uh where am i going with this uh i think in school when we're in school we tend to we tend to be uh conditioned out of uh the things that we maybe are attracted to doing you know initially but anyway that's the story uh today i hope um that was of some value for you uh if you want to get the two books i've have links there in the article over on larrygmaguire.com on today's sunday letters and uh you can um, go directly and purchase them or you can download ericsson's paper as well in fact you know what i'll do i'll get a i'll get a a, a, a piece of work by six cent mahaley as well and include that so you can download both of them and give them a read so i'm going to leave it at that for today uh thanks for tuning in to the daily larp today and listening to sunday letters uh the material from these two guys is well worth a read so don't forget to get over to larrygmaguire.com and download those couple of papers the six cent mahaley paper that i got for you is titled if we are so rich why aren't we happy and that's from october 2000 uh sorry october 1999 from the American Psychologist magazine, and uh, worth a read. Um, if you'd like to support this this podcast and help me keep it on the air, keep it ad free, because uh, I don't want to have to go down that road to finance it. Uh, why not become a patron? Get over to patreon.com forward slash Larry G McGuire, and you can become a patron of the show for only a dollar a month. Uh, there are other levels of of patronage as well there but it starts at a dollar and uh, if you'd like to help me continue this work well then that's the place to go and uh, thank you very much if you are already a patron and uh, you can jump over there at any time to get some patron only content and uh, when you sign up as a patron you get uh, you'll get email notifications from me uh, when new material is available so uh, thanks for listening in and uh to the show for today uh, larrygmaguire.com is where you get all my material uh, you can listen to this show on TuneIn and iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud uh, Stitcher Radio and anywhere good podcasts are played larrygmaguire.com is where you'll get all my stuff and until next time I'll see you alright have a good rest of your weekend take it easy <laughs>